you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. There's nothing normal about this. And it speaks to um, failings around him. He's a 13-year-old kid. And whatever ultimately is concluded with the circumstances of his death, the fact that he is dead tells us that we had a lot of work to do. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest today is a return engagement, newly reelected Cook County State's Attorney, Kim Fox. Kim, thanks for joining us. Fran, thanks for having me back. How are you and how's your husband's health? Uh, I am fine. My husband is doing much better. He is cancer-free, um, and we are incredibly grateful for that. So thank you for asking. Good for you and good for him. Chicago was on edge this week, as were other major cities, awaiting the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis for the murder of George Floyd. The National Guard was on standby here. Instead, Derek Chauvin was convicted on all counts. Were you surprised by that? I wasn't surprised that having looked at a substantial portion of the trial, I believe the prosecution made uh, their case. Uh, I think where people were holding their breath that even though you saw them make their case, uh, getting a conviction of a police officer um, for acts in the line of duty are rare. Uh, I think it was a, it was a, a ruling that was right and just, uh, but the breath holding was just because things are just and right doesn't mean that they always happen. Yeah. And do you think that the jury was in any way pressured by the fact that they were afraid and everyone was afraid that what would happen in cities if it was a different verdict? Not at all. As I said, I think the prosecution had you know, two solid weeks of evidence, including police officers from the same department as, as Derek Chauvin, who said that this was a criminal act. And so what was happening in the outside world, you know, I'm certain that people were aware of, but the facts in this case were so overwhelming and shouldn't be discounted um, by the jury. And the sentencing, what should it be? I mean, we saw um, Jason Van Dyke, I think, got six some odd years. He's going to be out pretty soon. What should happen in this case? You know, I, I certainly hope that the sentence is, is commiserate with the act. This was, by all accounts, cold-hearted and calculated, a, a man 
basically asphyxiating another man in the light of day in front of others, including children. And so I think the the sentence should be proportionate. I don't know. I think he's looking at between 12 and 40 years and a judge will have to make that determination. But I do think to your point, you know, clearly many people believe that the Jason Van Dyke sentence uh, was too lean given his actions. And so I hope that uh, justice is served in this case with a sentence that's proportionate. Now, this is a precarious time for Chicago. The city has had a series of protests, peaceful so far, because of the police shooting of 13-year-old Adam Toledo. When you saw the Adam Toledo shooting video, did you see a Chicago police officer kill a young man, even though he had time to react and see that Toledo had dropped the gun and had his hands in the air? Or did you see a young man who ran from police, got cornered in an alley, threw the gun behind a fence, raised his hands a split second before he was shot, but too late for that officer to react? You know, the killing of Adam Adam Toledo is undeniably tragic. And I think as a city, we are grappling with what it's like to lose a 13-year-old child and lose a 13-year-old child at the hands of the police. Our office right now is reviewing uh, the facts of that case to make a determination as to whether uh, criminal charges are warranted. And so I'm not in a position uh, to give my opinion about what I saw. Um, I can concur with with the majority of Chicagoans that this is an incredibly tragic situation. But there was a freeze frame photo that everybody has seen of Adam Toledo at the very end with his hands in the air. But what is not shown and what was on the video is that a split second before that, the gun is tossed behind the fence. So how quickly can a police officer react when he fears for his own life? Listen, we're, we're gonna look at all of it um, and make a determination based on uh, the totality of the evidence. and. As, as you know, you know, people have been able to see bits and pieces, and this was a fast-moving uh, ordeal. And you know, our job is to be able to look at the facts, the evidence, and law and make a determination. And I'm not in a position to do that um, at this point out of respect for the investigation and out of respect for the Toledo family. But you have talked to Officer Eric Stillman, who fired the shot. Our office is conducting an investigation as we speak. Can you tell me what Eric Stillman told you? Again, I can't comment on an ongoing investigation and it's certainly our hope that we'll be able to to move this along expeditiously so that the answers that the people uh, rightfully are demanding can be answered. But right now I can't speak to an ongoing investigation. And you did defeat Anita Alvarez who waited a year before charging Jason Van Dyke on the very day that the court ordered the release of the Laquan McDonald shooting video. I assume you're going to move it along and you feel pressure to move it along because of what happened to her. No, I, my, my pressure is that we have a a 13 year old boy who was killed and the, the expectation from the people in our community, both, you know, law enforcement and community who want to be able to see uh, answers and resolution to this. And so, you know, it is not a a pressure related to previous elections. It's a pressure to the severity of the incident that brought us to this point. 
Hispanic community leaders are demanding a federal investigation of the Toledo shooting. Should they get it? Yeah, I think that's up to the U.S. Department of Justice to determine whether this is a case that they would involve themselves in. Um, I can only speak to our work and our investigation, uh, but I understand the family's uh, concern and, and wanting as many people to look at this case as possible. So you would you would welcome that and you think it's justified, a federal investigation? I'm saying that I'm not in a position to determine whether a federal investigation is justified or not. I'm understanding of the request um, because if someone, if my child had been killed, I would want as many people to look at the case as possible. But that's a determination to be made by the Department of Justice, not by me. Do you agree with Mayor Lightfoot that the city of Chicago failed Adam Toledo? And if they did, how? We have a 13-year-old boy who was killed in an alley, um, who was out, you know, in the middle of the night. And, you know, I look at that and I look at the circumstances, you know, of what would have someone out there, a kid out there at that time with an adult um, engaged in, you know, the Ruben Roman was, you know, shooting a gun in the immediate moments before. And so clearly, and I said this, not just in this case, but anytime I see young people um, involved in, in our justice system, that somewhere they've fallen through the social safety nets, through the cracks, that it's not normal. Um, it shouldn't be normalized that our young people find themselves in this situation. And so I do think it is a collective failure. I do think we have to examine do we have enough supports and resources in communities, particularly communities that are vulnerable to violence, to ensure that our children have a chance? And whether that's, you know, being fallen by gang violence or finding yourself in an alley with a police officer, um, there's nothing normal about this. And it speaks to um, failings around him. He's a 13-year-old kid. And whatever ultimately is concluded with the circumstances of his death, the fact that he is dead, tells us that we had a lot of work to do. You have placed veteran Cook County Prosecutor Jim Murphy on administrative leave because he, quote, failed to fully present the facts during a bond hearing when he didn't specifically state that Adam Toledo was unarmed at the moment a Chicago police officer shot him. You say he didn't fully inform himself before the bond hearing for Ruben Roman, who was the 21-year-old who was with Toledo that night, uh, and that Adam uh, had a gun before a police officer shot him to death. Here's what Murphy told the judge as he read from a proffer statement. He said, the officer tells Adam to drop it as he turns toward the officer. Adam has a gun in his right hand. The officer fires one shot at Adam, striking him in the chest. The gun that Adam was holding landed against the fence a few feet away. Did you personally see that proffer that Jim Murphy read before he went to court? I had not, no. And why not? You're the state's attorney. This is a big case. It's a heater case. <laughs> Certainly, Fran. We do bond proffers um, daily, many times a day, um, and you know they don't rise up to me. One of the things that we're looking at in this particular case, to your point, because of the heater case, is why it had not been sent up to me. 
There is an ongoing investigation to see what happened, um, how we got to this point in the courtroom um, and afterwards. And that investigation is ongoing. But are you going to change policies? I mean, shouldn't you have seen it? Would you wanted to have seen it? And why didn't you demand to see it? Our office is looking at the circumstances around this particular proffer and making sure that we have uh, mechanisms and protocols in place uh, so that people are properly notified um, in cases like this. And so, as I said, we are looking to see how this happened. We're in the throes of that investigation and we'll be uh, coming forth with the results of that as well as uh, protocols and procedures to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. But isn't this a failure on your part? Didn't you personally drop the ball on a heater case? Brent, what happened here is something that we're investigating. And we are looking at how we got here. Um, My name is on the door. So anything that happens that comes from the state's attorney's office, I am responsible for. I don't believe in pushing uh, blame or the buck. And in this instance, you know, the public was relying on information that our office presented um, to the courts and the media relied upon uh, that wasn't fully accurate. And so I own that. And in the meantime, what we're doing is making sure that it doesn't happen again and we have the proper procedures and protocols in place. Did anyone else in the office read Murphy's statement before he read it in court? Was it approved by a supervisor? As I said, we will be coming forth with the results of our investigation in short order, and those questions that are being vetted right now will be answered. Why is Murphy being thrown under the bus when he didn't lie or knowingly present inaccurate information to the judge? What do you say to those who believe he's kind of a sacrificial lamb because you're running for political cover? What does that do to morale in your office even? You know, I, I, one would start with, there were a lot of people who listened to that proffer and had assumptions about the evidence in the case um, that wasn't fully accurate. The people who, as we started this conversation around, you know, the, the death of George Floyd, have lost faith in the criminal justice system and policing and prosecution um, because of narratives that are told that aren't exactly accurate. I literally just saw yesterday the initial police uh, uh, statement around the death of George Floyd that said he died of a medical incident. There is an expectation, and it should be an expectation, that those of us in law enforcement are fully transparent um, about the information and evidence that we have. This isn't about political cover. This is about the expectation of law enforcement to be uh, forthright and transparent. And so there is no sacrificial lamb here. This is about making sure that we get it right. And when we don't get it right, owning it and doing uh, what we need to do to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And I'll tell you, morale in our office, it has been very difficult. You know, this is someone who is well-respected and regarded both internally, externally by judges and defense attorneys and, you know, has a reputation that, that has been incredibly strong. But I have a responsibility, as you said, uh, because my name is on it, as I said, my name is on the door to make sure that we're as transparent as we need to be um, and take responsibility where we must. But I mean, if you drop the ball and you admit you did because you should have asked for to see this proper in a heater case, then why aren't you on leave, too? I mean, didn't you drop the ball as well as Murphy dropping the ball? 
Well, I, I, I think your framing, Fran, is making assumptions that we aren't in a position to make. Uh, and what I'm saying to you is how this happened is being investigated right now. What I have said, and I want us to be exceptionally clear, is that we're trying to figure out what happened here. I didn't say what I, I, what I said is I didn't know. And how that happened is something that is critically important to our organization to make sure that we are not in that position. Um, And so the investigation is ongoing. Uh, We will be able to to answer those questions and again, put protocols in place. But I wanna be clear. Something was amiss here and we're taking responsibility by getting to the heart of what that is so that it doesn't happen again. Right, but you're also saying that you should have been seen the proffer. You should have been shown that proffer because it is a heater case. It's a huge case. This is the youngest victim of a police shooting in Chicago in, in recent memory, if not ever. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with the significance of the case, and I'm not disagreeing um, that those types of proffers are things that would be expected to be elevated. What I'm saying is we're looking to see what happened here. So there has to be more suspensions or more punishments here because there's got to be a lot of people who dropped the ball and not giving you the proffer, and, and you yourself didn't get it, and you didn't demand it. So... There's got to be more more victims here, more people who are held accountable. As, as I said, we are looking at what happened here, doing a thorough investigation because the people um, who entrust our office to get it right are demanding that. And I don't want to prejudge or, and, and I, I want to be abundantly clear with that, prejudge what that looks like. Um, but I want it to be done thoroughly so that when we present what happened here, um, all of the facts are there. And we will. And who's it. doing this investigation? It's an internal no. investigation. Okay. And are we to trust that? Why not an outside firm or somebody? Well, I think this is expediency matters here. Um, it, it matters that we get this done quickly. Uh, we are talking about a relative short period of time, and we want to be able to get this out to the public as, as quickly as possible. And why did it take five days for you to release a statement clarifying Murphy's outlining of the criminal charges? That is also going to be a part of the uh, findings that we make that are being investigated as we speak. The Fraternal Order of Police President John Catanzara has called this shooting absolutely justified. He has said there is no way that the officer could have responded quickly enough in that dark alley. And yet community activists look at it as an assassination by police. What are your thoughts? Again, I, I, can't, I, I can't speak to people's feelings about this case. I have to speak to the facts, evidence, and the law to make a determination. And that is underway where we're doing an investigation as we speak. And I'm not getting into um, the emotions um, on either side, other than this is a tragedy uh, that a 13 year old boy lost his life that night. And the ongoing investigation will reveal whether or not this was um, a criminal act or not. Do you agree with Mayor Lightfoot that bail reform has gone too far and that judges are freeing way too many people charged with gun crimes and violent felonies? Um, I don't know that I've heard the 
mayor say that bail reform has gone too far. I, I share her concern that we continue to have uh, elevated violence in our communities, particularly related to guns. Um, I am pleased that we will have uh, the elimination of cash bail in 2023 so that people who pose a threat to public safety are unable to you know, pay their way out of jail and can be held pre-trial if they pose a threat. Right now, the issue is is that even people who are uh, charged with violent offenses, if they are given a, a monetary bail amount and they can afford it, um, they can walk out of jail. Um, and I don't think that that keeps our community safe. But what about at least six examples this year of people on electronic moder- monitoring for gun crimes, killing and shooting people? I'm, friend, I'm agreeing that we absolutely need a system in place in which people can be held pretrial if they are a threat to public safety. Right now, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that the courts have said, and by courts, the Supreme Court has listed factors in which someone can be held without bond. Um, and those factors uh, don't account for a lot of people who should be held. This new law that will say that if you are a threat to public safety, even you know for a charge like a gun charge, you can be held um, pre-trial with no condition that you can get out. And that's what's important here. And so in those instances that you, you cite, you know, yes, we should not be having people who are a threat to public safety out pre-trial um, if they're going to cause harm. I, I've long agreed with that. The bail system as we have it right now has not ensured that. It's just ensured that people with access to cash, no matter their propensity for violence, are able to get out. Shootings are up more than 50%. Homicides are up more than 30% over last year, which was a very violent year. Carjackings are still through the roof. What do you think of the police department's anti-violence strategy? And are you even able to articulate what that strategy is? I think that these are incredibly challenging times in Chicago, Cook County, and across the country. Um, I think we are seeing other major cities grappling uh, with these same issues, whether it's New York or Milwaukee or Atlanta, D.C. Um, And, you know, it is requiring us to shift how we address these issues in the middle of a pandemic and the civil unrest that has made this last year uh, incredibly challenging. Um, and I think learning from the lessons that we've had over over this period of time, I, I don't envy uh, the police superintendent in trying to, to figure out this strategy in these ever-evolving times, um, because it, it is unlike any other period um, I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah, David Brown is coming up on his first year as superintendent. How's he doing? Again, if you look back over when David Brown came to the city of Chicago, the beginning of COVID and before the civil unrest and and the traditional summer violence, he's had an incredibly challenging time. Um, And so it's, again, an incredibly difficult job in the best of times. Uh, It has been even that much more difficult in what has been the worst of times. And so... You know, certainly I think he's doing the best that he can uh, within a very difficult situation. Has he been visible enough? A lot of aldermen say not. Not on the Toledo shooting, not on the seven-year-old Jaslyn Adams, the little girl who was gunned down last Sunday. 
while at McDonald's drive-thru with her father? Should he get out there more? You know, I, I like to speak to the things that, that my office handles and controls. I think people want to feel safe. They want to know that things are happening. And, you know, I don't, I'm not in the business of saying how other people should spend their time reassuring folks. Uh, these are very difficult times. The, the, the murder of young Jasmine in the, in the McDonald's drive-thru is going to have reverberating effects um, throughout that community of young people who are living in fear. And that's something that is leadership we should be cognizant of and, and actively working to address. In December 2019, you decided to keep nearly $30,000 in campaign contributions from a 2016 fundraiser hosted by now indicted 14th Ward Alderman Ed Burke. And that was a departure from the approach taken by your political mentor, Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, who gave back the money. You attended the fundraiser at Burke's home. Um, any second thoughts about that after the anti-Semitic remark that Burt made, according to federal documents that were filed in his case this week? Listen, I don't ascribe to um, Alderman Burt's uh, anti-Semitic remarks or any of the behavior that he's engaged in that has found himself where he is right now, which is under criminal indictment. Um, you mentioned this from 2019, um, in, in which the campaign, that campaign and those dollars have been spent. Um, I have never, and, and want to be unequivocal in saying that, uh, supported the criminal behavior of anyone. It's why I'm a prosecutor. Um, and nor do I, uh, and I, I should say this, I strongly condone uh, the rhetoric that I read about yesterday. That's not- You mean condemn. I think you mean condemn, right? Condemn. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, you but always... if if the remark that he had been quoted as making had been a disparaging remark about African-Americans, wouldn't you be giving back that 30000 even though you spent it? A friend, it's a weird game of hypotheticals that I'm not- playing today. Uh, the the truth is Alderman Burke will have to be held accountable for all of his actions, uh, criminal and otherwise, and he is solely responsible for that um, and, and should be. But if you're that disgusted by anti-Semitism as you would be by a remark that would be anti-African-American, why not get rid of his tainted money? Friend, that money went towards running a campaign to make sure that I could get reelected to do the work on behalf of the people of Cook County. And that work has, since my reelection, included the vacating of an additional nine convictions for people who were wrongfully convicted under Sergeant Watts. It has included continuing to handle the thousands of uh, felony cases that have come through the last year. My record and commitment to the people of Cook County and our criminal justice system um, is what I stand on. My disgust about the criminal acts and the anti-Semitic language that Alderman Burke has used um, can exist at the same time. I can be outraged by what I've seen and still do the work that the people elected me to do. After you were reelected, you detailed a bold vision for drug enforcement and you laid out a plan to, as you laid out your plan to wipe the slate clean of people with records of uh, 
convicted weed dealers. And you open the door to expunging offenses for heroin and cocaine possession. You framed cannabis legislation as a test balloon in a gateway conversation for reexamining all the drug laws. Where does that stand right now and how fast do you think we ought to move on that? You know, we're still looking at it and we're working with people both in the criminal justice system and in mental health and substance use disorder to frame what this would look like. The reality is we get it. We know that substance use is an addiction or, or substance use disorder is, a, is an addiction. It's a public health crisis. There's not been um, a leader in the public health space who has said otherwise. And yet we use the criminal justice system to criminalize people who we know have addiction issues. And so these are conversations that are ongoing, um, that we're having with state legislature uh, members, um, the governor's office, and others to see what does it mean to meaningfully and adequately resource treatment um, as opposed to incarceration. And so it is a bold vision and one that I'm committed to and one that I think we, we we hope to have uh, in place in the near term. And how far should it go and with what drugs and how much of them? Yeah, I mean, I'm starting with the premise of people with substance use disorders need treatment, not incarceration. Um, and the reality is, is that we've seen, especially in this last year with COVID, I, I believe uh, overdose deaths um, were at a high those people weren't criminals. They were people who were suffering. And so whether that was cocaine or heroin or fentanyl or prescription drugs, uh, you know, I'm not making value judgments on, on which person used what type of drugs to say that that's a, a disorder. And so I can't tell you how, when, how far, other than we know that we have an issue here with people who are dying of drug overdoses, people who are suffering with addiction and don't have the resources to treat it. And we should go as far and as wide as we can to make sure that people's needs are met so that we can stop losing so many people uh, to substance use disorder. Mayor Lightfoot touched off a firestorm of protests in the city council by spending $281 million in early round stimulus money on police payroll. She now wants to spend more than half of the $1.9 billion avalanche of new stimulus money on its way to eliminate scoop and toss borrowing. How should she spend that money? I am not in any way in a position to say how the mayor um, spends city resources or dollars um, because I'm not privy uh, to the obligations and responsibilities that she is contending with in what, again, has been an incredibly difficult year. So I can't speak to how she should spend those dollars. She's approaching midterm. How's she doing? Where has she fallen short, particularly on the issues of public safety and police reform? She promised a civilian oversight panel the power to hire and fire the superintendent and be the final arbiter on disputes over police policy within her first hundred days, and she hasn't delivered it yet. You know, I think that the the last two years, um, again, have been difficult, the last year alone. And I think the the mayor's performance should be evaluated under the circumstances in which she's been asked to lead. And as many of us have had to shift our responsibilities um, in light of COVID um, and, and the, the violence that we have seen, um, she's had to as well. 
I think it's up to the the people of Chicago to determine um, how she is doing uh, and, and evaluate that. I think your point about, you know, civilian oversight for police is something that I um, am supportive of, have been supportive of, and certainly think that the times demanded and hope that we can get some resolution on that in short order. And should that panel have the final say over police policy, have the final say over hiring and firing the superintendent? Should they have those powers that you know, she does not want to give them? You know, there are two uh, competing ordinances uh, that are out there right now that I've seen that certainly can be tweaked. I think we should get to the point of saying, you know, what is the best of both worlds that are offered there? Um, I'm not in a position to say whether it is, you know, the person has the final determination of whether someone should be fired or not. What I am in a position to say is that we need civilian oversight that is long overdue, um, and we need to reach whatever the compromise uh, is quickly. The FOP is planning to return to Springfield to try and undo portions of the criminal justice reform bill that Governor Pritzker signed. Um, and then on the other side, there's the movement to end qualified immunity for police officers. Which side of that debate is going to win out? And if qualified immunity is stripped away from police officers, one officers who already feel kind of under siege and they're already retiring in record numbers, won't they run for the hills? You know, I, I fashion this in the, we have to stop talking about individuals and where we are. And the reality is, is that, you know, what we saw in the streets last summer, I don't want us to miss that this is about individuals, it's about a system. And there, we have spent millions, hundreds of millions of dollars um, in lawsuit payouts uh, related to um, incidents of police misconduct. That's happened. That, that is a real taxpayer cost. And so I think everyone involved, law enforcement and the public, want a system that's legitimate and fair um, and holds people accountable where necessary. And so what that looks like ultimately, whether it's related to qualified immunity or some other reform, we should all be at the table for. But I think the positioning of which side are you on, I'm on the side of a credible, legitimate, constitutional policing force that keeps our community safe. That this, what frustrates me in all of these conversations is if you're for this, you're against that. I'm for healthy, safe, thriving communities, and particularly communities that have been impacted by violence, including police violence, believe in the legitimacy um, of our work. And I am optimistic that at some point we will get past the political posturing and do the work that's necessary to get there. So that's where I am on it. And before we let you go, some say you're part of a national network of progressive chief prosecutors, including your counterparts in L.A. and San Francisco. What is your involvement with them? Do you all coordinate? We talk, uh, you know, very similar issues come up in other major cities. And it, it is a matter of, you know, they've got good programmatic ideas. It's the things that we can do here. Um, you would be surprised uh, to hear that some of the same rhetoric that you, we talked about earlier around bail um, is conversations happening with my counterparts in New York, in L.A., in San Francisco. Uh, the same conversations around, you know, violence are the same ones we're seeing here. The politics 
of prosecution, it doesn't matter where you are, um, don't change. And so we are in constant communication sometimes to uplift one another, to share data, facts, um, and, and figure out ways to amplify um, what is happening um, and to tamp down misinformation and to give support to one another. So uh, it is it is comforting to be able to have people in unique jobs like the one that I have who are going through similar circumstances to be able to talk um, and confer with and learn from. Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for submitting to our interrogation. And good luck to you. And we, <laughs> right? Am I right? In your next lifetime, let me hire you as a prosecutor, friend. You'd be great. I'd <laughs> I gave you the Perry Mason routine. Okay, and we will see you all next week. Thank you.